Wow, that was incredible. Thank you very much. <laughs> Do you ever see something you wish you could have picked the pictures? <laughs> it was like, no, but that's, that's real life right there. Thank you so much for all that work that went into that. And, and uh, I also, I was, I was looking at it, I would just think, I really have had a great life. It, it's absolutely been amazing. Um, so uh, it's good to see everybody today, and we are here in our fifth week of Transformed, and um, I'm having a little bit of a hard time getting into this today, and you'll see why in a, in a few minutes, uh, but we've been talking about being transformed and renewing of our mind by Scripture. Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, and I think most of us have figured out we can't copy what the world's doing, not because we want it so bad, it's just that it's so whacked that it's not worth copying any longer, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that when we get into the word of God, it changes how we feel, how we think, our spiritual attitude. Uh, uh, and t- today we're gonna be learning about how it affects our um, relational um, life that we experience with other people. But last week, we, we just finished going through emotions. And I think for a lot of us, you know, learning about emotions was really different because we didn't really think God wanted to talk to us about our emotions. Some of us, especially if you're a, d- a dude my age, emotions are kind of like girly, and I'm not even sure I'm allowed to say that anymore, but they're kind of like girly, and so you don't have them, you suppress them and all that. Um, and the other thing that began to pop up with this whole Transform series is we want to be transformed when God leads us into the transformation that we want. That we entered into it, it's like, oh yeah, I want to be healthier, I want to get in better shape, I want to think better, I want to increase my education, I want to, you know, I want to have a better marriage, I want to have better kids, and so we go into it and all. But in the middle of the series, I think we started getting challenged about things that we didn't want to get challenged about. And all of a sudden, we began to realize that God wanted us to have new thoughts, and you really have asked yourself a question, do I really want to have God's thoughts? Because the more you get into his word, you begin to wonder. It's like, and that's an honest question. And Jesus asked people that. He said, you know, uh, pick up your cross and follow me. He's like, listen, this is going to change the way that you think. Um, In the middle of all this emotional transformation, mental transformation, um, we were able to, uh, people share their testimonies. And one testimony kind of really spoke to me personally. And I'm going to ask that you don't leave or move. Uh, for the next six minutes, um, I've been a pastor for, I don't know, almost uh, 30-something years, and I've been a Christian that long, and uh, there's a lot of things that we deal with emotionally in life. We deal with depression, excitement, joy, all the different feelings. I don't think I've ever heard a testimony that has communicated a sense of transformation in the way a person could think in the face of of what this person is going through, uh, a young 27-year-old. And uh, so let me encourage you that God wants to change the way that we think about life, the way that we think about ourselves, the way we think about heaven, the way we think about people around us. Um, So let's watch together. God has always just been my rock and my savior. It was never a question of faith. I had a great childhood growing up. I was an athlete. I was a smart academic student. I loved school. I had many friends. I woke up one October morning after turning 16 
and I knew something was wrong. I had a pain in my stomach that wouldn't go away. We went to the hospital. We found out my gallbladder was getting ready to burst, but we had no reasoning for it. We removed it. What followed was five years of tests and surgeries and no answers. We found I had chronic pancreatitis and the best answer they could give me was just wait on science. It, science has to catch up to you. So we did. We waited for five years until I got to a point I couldn't take it anymore. I was tired of feeling sick and tired. I Google searched my condition and within 35 days I was having my pancreas removed. Now Dr. Morgan never said she could cure me. She just said she could stop it from becoming stage 4 cancer. So that's what we did, no questions asked. I thought it would be the answer and the cure. I thought whatever I had done in those 16 years to cause the disease would be healed. Like I had gone through enough in those five years. We didn't know what was coming next. Um, I developed a brain disorder because my liver decided that since it was doing my pancreas's job, which was part of the surgery, it wasn't going to do its job anymore. So my body keeps poisoning itself. And in that way, it causes my brain to swell. We can't stop that from happening. And I kept saying, well, it's God's will. God's will, he will heal me, we will find the right doctors. One of these days it's gonna happen and we just have to wait for it too. I will continue to go through this because he is an ever present and ever loving God and this is his will, but I will get healed. We did a surgery in January that was supposed to do that. And I didn't feel any difference from it. Going back in in March and in women's retreat, I had a powerful moment with God. And I said, okay, I'm tired of this. If this is not to be, please don't let me go through this. And I said, and I got really angry and I didn't realize how angry I was at him. I was angry because I'd lost a life I thought I deserved. I lost a life that I thought was meant for me. And I didn't understand what I had done wrong. What had I done wrong in the 16 years and seven months to cause this from happening? Because I believe I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am made in God's image. What did I do wrong to cause my body to fail? What, what did I do? And he said, Kate, if I could heal, I could heal you in one second if I wanted to. You keep saying, use me for your will. Use me as your vessel. Well, part of this is you get healed when you come to the other side with me. I'm the girl with the scars and haven't I done enough? And he said, wasn't the cross enough? And it was a shocking moment to me. This was his plan A for me. And he said, this is for my will. You are my creation. You're not broken. You're just a stained glass window. We're just soldering you piece in piece. And I promise you, when you get to the other side, when that time comes, 
you're going to have a great body and it's going to be wonderful and you're going to get why all this happened. But in this life, in this earth, that's not happening for you. That's not my will. My will is for you to be the broken. My will is for you to use what I have given you because not many people have it. You have strength, you have determination, you get up and you keep fighting. And I said, okay, well, you don't want me to do the surgery. And he said, no, now that we have an understanding, I can help you. I'm not going to cure you, but I will help you deal with the pain. I'm thinking, I hurt so bad, I don't want to do this today. And he said he would help. And so I'm learning to accept that by grace because he promised me an eternity with him. And I offered myself to him as his vessel. And if he wants a stained glass window, well, he's gonna get a stained glass window with me. That is beyond speech, a comprehension of the gospel. What the thing in the middle of that that just really affected me was, um, isn't the cross enough? And if we're honest, as American Christians, it's not. We got to have the house. We got to have the car. We got to have the job. We got to have the bride. We have got to have to have the kids. We got to have equality. We got to have our personal fulfillment. We got to have it all. And God's like, no, that's not what I promised you. Isn't the cross enough? Um, the amount of courage in that testimony, um, I could preach. I was going to do the math on how many sermons I have preached, but I don't think I've ever preached all of them together that would have conveyed so much faith as that one short six-minute video just communicated. But if you're like me, that's not the faith I want. That's not the Jesus I want. That's not the God I want. But I've got to be honest with you, it's the one that's in the scriptures. It's the one that's in the heavens. It's the one that knows every sparrow that falls. It's the one that gave his only begotten son. You know, this is not a young woman that um, doesn't have faith. She has incredible faith. Nobody could find fault in her faith. Well, if she just believed more, she'll be healed. No, this is, this, this is probably the most succinct, lucid faith I've ever experienced in my life in a person. She faced everything that I am scared of every single day, the thing that you and I are afraid of every single day. Um, but that takes a transformation in mind. So this series that we're doing, you may be like, I don't want to do this stupid transformation thing. It's a Rick Warren thing, or I don't want to do it. I don't need to be transformed. My life is good. It's like, really? Is, is that what you have? And I'm not saying this to shame anybody here. I'm just saying, listen, 
to get the real thing into us. That's what the real thing looks like. Hell or high water, I get to go live with my savior. That he doesn't have to give me the job. He doesn't have to give me the house. You know, uh, he doesn't even have to fix my body. Um, I will pick up my cross and I will follow him. There has been no other gospel written in the scriptures than the one that she just communicated. The one that we've been given over the last 50 years of my life, 63 years of my life, has been corrupted. Uh, It's been melded with an American concept of God. Um, And the the concept of God that she has is so much greater. It raises the dead. It experiences eternal life. That's what I want my mind transformed into. Like I told you, it was, there was no like really good segue out of this. So I'm just going to go into like a little dance medley right now and kind of like maybe, but uh, I was just, I was overwhelmed by that. And we have a lot of wonderful testimonies that we've heard and, and now all of us have our own unique story. Um, and so I thank Katie so much for sharing her story with us. Today we're going to take a look at diff- diffusing some fears in relationships. And maybe coming out of that, you may like, okay, yeah, I really need to get serious about this. You know, this is not about picking the church that has the bouncy castle or the best music or the coolest lights or the youngest, you know, or, you know, smartest pastor or whatever. You know, this, this is about this life and death. This is about resurrection. This is about Christ in us, the hope of glory. This is about new creations, old things passed away, all things becoming new. It's like, yes, that's what it's all about. And, and Katie's helped recenter us back to what is it that we're really about. And what we're really about is also transforming relationships. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at where relationships got messed up. We're going to look at Adam and Eve a little bit. And, and let me just say right up front, uh, there's a lot of good scholastic being done on the story of Adam and Eve. I highly recommend the Bible Project on Spotify. Uh, listen to it as they talk about the, the academics of how to read the book of Genesis correctly. And I'm going to say something that I hope it doesn't offend you, but whether you read it as literal history, I mean literally history, that God created the earth in seven days and, and, and all that, or you read it as a literally true allegory, which can be done both ways. And both of them would be literally true, but it, it, whether it's a device being used by God to kind of tell a story for us, no matter which way that you look at it, it contains divine insights on how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to other people, how we relate to God. So, so it really doesn't matter whether, I don't believe that really happened. It's like, God, I don't really, well, it doesn't matter. It, the story's true, but whether it's a true metaphor, it's true history, well, you know, that doesn't change the elements in it that God's using to speak to us. So in Genesis 2.18, we pick up the story. And then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed the ground, uh, from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. And he brought them to man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one of them. And God 
and he gave names to the livestock and all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God, and I love it, there was no helper just right for me. Aren't we just always looking for Mr. Right, the right person that doesn't tick us off, the right person that makes us happy, the right woman, the right person in our life, that Mr. Right or that Mrs. Right in our lives, the right job, the right boss. I mean, we put the pressure on the world to produce the right. So God's like, okay, let's, let's see if it will work if I give you everything that's right, the right pastor, the right church, the right president, the right, I mean, we can go down the list. So God starts bringing them all the stuff. But still there was no just right helper for him. So the Lord caused the man to sleep into a deep sleep. And while man slept, the Lord took out of the man's rib and closed up the opening. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. And she will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, this is beautiful. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So we got Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, and we've got, you know, this should work, shouldn't it? I mean, if you got all right, if you got the right job, if you got the right income, you got up the right persons in your life, and we work really hard, you're part of the right political party, we get it all lined up, life should work just perfectly. So to avoid this from becoming a conversation about husband and wives, let me just say that some of these universal truths that we're going to find in here will apply to any relationship. Um, One, God created us to live in relationship. Also, God created us not to dominate over each other, no matter what kind of relationship that we're in. That God created us to complement each other. And that God created us to live together without shame. That seems to be a universal truth. So whether it's us as a church, whether it's us as a nation, or us in family, there were differences between Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and a lot of people say, well, this was the perfect relationship. And it's like, well, it might have been perfect in the sense that it didn't have any sinful behavior, but differences are differences, and they still require to be worked out. Just because once you get two human beings trying to live together, I don't care if they're perfect human beings, they're still different, and there's still going to be challenges in the relationship. And so any relationship is going to require some sort of management to take place. But their story goes, like most of our relationships, there, there isn't just two perfect people. There's, there's compromise, and there is this thing called sin that enters into it. You know the story. Let, let me read it to you, though. Genesis 2.25 continues and says, Now the man and the wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Um, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And the woman replies, Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden. It's only the tree from the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You will not die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman was convinced, 
She saw that the tree was beautiful and that the fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took from the fruit of some of the fruit and ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. See, we're seeing that when principles and boundaries are crossed and are broken that all of a sudden the relationship is going to be affected. So you may be sitting next to somebody that 15 years ago you thought was perfect for you. You know, absolutely perfect. I mean, you were just like so enamored, so overwhelmed. It was like, and you were saying things to yourself, crazy things like, we're not gonna be like my parents. You know, this is gonna be different. We're not like everybody else. You know, and you had that, and that's cool. It's great to start off with that kind of paradise thinking. But, you know, as you begin to develop into relationship, things, compromises, attitudes, God-seeking self-centeredness begins to break in, difficulty happens. Its boundaries are crossed. Genesis 3, 7, the first part of it says this, and at that moment, their eyes were opened and they felt ashamed at their nakedness. This is where relationships begin to fail. This is where all the trouble begins to happen. And this is where people begin to alter behavior. Before this, they were acting normal. It's funny that, and it wasn't, they were acting normal and they were naked. That's pretty cool. I like that idea. Acting normal, naked, that would be a really cool place to live. I see Calvin smiling over there. I think he likes that idea too. But, uh, but you know what? Naked wasn't their problem. The problem was that now they had shame. And, and we're gonna see how shame alters so much of a relationship. Genesis 3, 7 continues and says, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. It's out of the shame that people start doing little weird things, okay? I mean, just visualize in your mind sewing together fig leaves. They start covering themselves with, it's not just in their loin areas that they're doing this, like the pictures that you see, you know, were painted in the Renaissance. But no, they just were just like sewing these fig leaves together. They were these perfectly naked people, not they weren't perfectly naked, meaning that they were naked perfectly, but they were naked, you know what I'm saying, right? I'm not saying they had perfect bodies. They were just completely naked. And then all of a sudden you got these people walking around with, with vines and leaves all over themselves. I mean, it's like, how do you end up so stupid looking? Okay, well, you say, well, that's crazy. It's like, well, how did your marriage end up looking so stupid? Or your family, or racism, or our nation. I mean, look at this. We're just sewing things together and trying to make it look better, and, and yet, this, we got all these problems. Uh, so we're going to see how the shame begins to become a catalyst for fear in relationships. So this story is fascinating, absolutely fascinating, and it's filled with incredible spiritual and, and relational truth. And we're going to see that three fundamental fears pop out of this story that every one of us deal with. And we deal with these three fears with just about every relationship. So it's not this is not a husband and wife Sunday. This is about relationships that we deal with other people every single day. One, the fear of exposure makes me distant. The fear of exposure, this shame, this nakedness, it begins to make me distant. If you ever ask yourself the question, why can't I get close to people in my life? 
why don't I just connect with people? Or, or this, why can't people connect with me in life? Or maybe you have a loved one that you've desired to get close to, but there seems to be this barrier between you and them. And, and maybe we're not sure what side the barrier was built on, but it's interesting that the things that you know about you make you afraid of being discovered. It really is true that there are things that you know about you you don't want me to know. I know that. You say, why? Because you all come in here on Sunday morning as happy as can be. I know you're not as happy as can be. Well, why are we faking it? You know, I, when I was in our transform group on Tuesday, on Monday, uh, when we were in that, there was this part in this conversation it was like, explain one emotion that, you're, that you really feel you need to work on. And immediately the first words that came out was, I'm guessing that most people aren't gonna wanna share this one. And I, I, I started laughing in the group. Not because I'm better than anybody in the group, but because uh, I have a lot of weaknesses. I have a ton of weaknesses. Exposure or being naked is not my fear, okay? Every single Sunday, I will share with you things that you'll be like, oh, wow, he really shouldn't have shared that. It's like, I, I, I really did not need to know that. And it's like, it's because, you know what? I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not hiding. Um, you know everything bad about me. You really do. I've told you about the drugs, the sex, the divorce. Uh, I mean, uh, the pride, the arrogance, the vanity. Um, I, I, if I'm leaving anything out, let me know. But I really, I really have told you about it. And so, but one of the things I do find about people is that we are afraid to be discovered. You know, it's like we're afraid to be found out. And we do all kinds of crazy things to hide from people. And as a result of it, we never really get super close to most people. Story continues. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and the wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he replied, I, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Um, where are you? Why are you hiding? You know, could your wife ask you that question? Where are, where'd you go? Where, you know, where'd you go? Could your, could your husband ask you that question? It's like, or your friends, you know, where are you? I mean, you're hiding. I, I don't think I'm getting the real you. I think I'm getting the Sunday you. Or, or I'm getting, you know, where did you go to? And see, God already knows where Adam and Eve are, but he wants Adam to own up to the fact that he's hiding. See, we will never get transformed if we don't all admit we're hiding. I, I know that. I know that about me. I know the propensity to hide. I, I know that about you. And, and God's like, but do you know that about you? You know, we all know that you're hiding, that there's things that, maybe there's things that we're not supposed to be sharing on a Sunday morning from the pulpit, but you know, there, there, but there are some people we should be able to disclose what's really going on inside of us, what's really going on, our doubts, our fears, uh, exactly what Katie did for us. Her anger. 
See, nothing changes if you don't own up. Uh, We have to be honest to God and honest to ourselves about what's going on inside of us because fear will always cause us to hide. And there's nothing worse, and I would say, than when it happens in a family, when when a mom and a dad particularly are hiding, when in a marriage relationship where you've got two people who are hiding from each other. Adam said, I was naked. And what does that translate into? I was exposed, uncovered. I was vulnerable. That's what we don't like about it. The authentic you is vulnerable. If anybody knows what your weakness is, all of a sudden, there's a way to get to you if that's something that you want to hide from. Um, What do they call that? There's this thing, ransomware. Ransomware is like, okay, now somebody can you know, get your stuff and then say, okay, I'm going to publish these pictures about you unless you pay me a million dollars. And it's like, wow, if somebody really found out what I'm really like, that's why I am so open to you about me. Because I don't, it's like, if anybody finds out anything on me, I want to be like, yeah, I already told them about that. I was like, yeah, they already knew that about me. It was like, you know how freeing that really is in life? Um, but shame makes you hide the authentic you. Uh, shame makes, makes me hide. Shame, shame makes me self-conscious. It makes me nervous. It makes me f- fearful of being humiliated. It makes me afraid of being mortified. Some of us are terrified of being mortified in public. Shame leads to the big cover-up. We sew fig leaves together. Now, I'm just using this profession because it's always been revered in my family, but the profession of being a medical doctor. You know, the medical doctor in the 60s and 70s, I remember Dr. Hinnendale, he was our family doctor, and they would, he would drive to your house and he would have this cool little convertible Mercedes that he drove up in and he'd have a little top hat and he had a jacket on, always wore a tie, and he had this incredible, you know, cool, like, doctor bag and he had a deep voice, very sophisticated, very, I mean, just a, an amazing example of a human being. And, you know, he came in and always spoke calmly to us and, you know, put his little stethoscope on us as we were coughing with the flu in bed or, you know, gave us our warm medicine or whatever it was that we were taking back then. And, and I remember it. And, and it was, and so growing up all my life, I always thought, well, these people are really better. They're smarter. They're better. Now I'm 63 years of age. And I realized about three-quarters of them became doctors because they're hiding. Yeah, they're still smarter. And they still may be more organized in their minds. But it's not all out of this Hippocratic oath to do well and good for other people. It's because I'm afraid I'll be discovered of being weak, so I need to show myself strong, powerful. That's just one profession. Some of us become teachers. Some of us become pastors. Some of us become all kinds of things, not because we genuinely discovered our purpose that God created us to be, and out of this altruistic desire to make mankind better, it's like, no, we sew ourselves together a really good-looking fig leaf. Now we're comparing fig leaves to each other. Would you drive? 
You know, I drive a Toyota Camry. Well, I've got the ES300 from Lexus. It's like a Camry on steroids. You know, it's like, ooh, you got a better fig leaf than I do. And I'm all for Lexus and I'm all for Mercedes. This is not any, anything against what you're driving. It's not anything against your profession. I'm just challenging you on this. Is it possible you're driving what you're driving, not because it's a car and you enjoy it, you're doing your profession not because it's altruistic and, you're, and you're, you want to help mankind, but because you're really hiding and it's really a fig leaf. That there is, there's a you behind there that you don't want anybody else to ever discover, so you have to prove yourself smarter than other people. I have lived in that place all my life. I have always had to try to prove myself smarter than other pastors. Um, maybe it's because I'm the middle child of eight children, and I, you know, always felt like I was an idiot, and I needed to prove myself smarter, and it became my fig leaf. So some of us use humor, success, overachievement, online images. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, your online image can, like, you're a stud, you know? Uh, you're, or you're beautiful, and all those all those filters that you use when you put your picture on the internet, you know, it's like kind of make your face look perfect and all. It's like, why? Those are just fig leaves. And we all use them. We all, we all hide. Shame leads to distance from God. They hid among the trees. We keep secrets out of fear from our loved ones. What if my wife found out that I really was struggling with this or with that? I don't think there's a thing that my wife doesn't know I struggle with. But I was upfront with her when we got married. You're marrying a regular human being who loves God with, with all of his heart. But I am a regular human being, and I'm trying to be conformed into the image of Christ. She was like, okay, I trust the God in you so much that I'm willing to put up with the human in you. Yeah, but so many of us are are just hiding from God and hiding from one another. The second thing that this shame does, producing fear, is my fear of disapproval makes me defensive. Sometimes we find ourselves disapproving in other people what we find disapproving in ourselves. Or maybe I find myself being defensive because putting you down or guarding or arguing against you will keep me from being exposed. In most cases, in the realm of psychology, they have discovered that the more critical, the more perfectionist, the more attacking, the more a person puts other people down, the more that person themselves is afraid of the disapproval of other people. You know, some people go to the gym to look great, not because, not because they just want to look okay or good or just because they want to keep their heart healthy or they want to keep their bones going is because they have this I can't be anything less than perfect I don't want anybody to think of me as anything less than perfect but a lot of the arguments that we have with one another you know that we we, we constantly have is because we're being defensive God asked Adam in verse 12 did you eat of what I told you not to eat and, and Adam answered saying, you gave me this woman, and she gave me the fruit, so I ate. Like, wow, that's a pretty good defense right there. Uh, he manned up all the way. I mean, he did exactly what he did. He, he blamed his wife. That woman you gave me, and by the way, God, 
Um, I would have been okay with the giraffes and the hippos that came by, but, you know, it was your idea to, you know, bring the woman along. So really, this is your fault that I'm not happy in this marriage. This is my, that's, this is your fault that I'm not good at my job, you know, and that's what we do is we try to find somebody else to blame for why I feel insufficient as a human being. Verse 13, so God kind of goes down the line and is like, okay, Eve, what do you say? Eve said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So Adam blames his wife, his wife blames the snake, and you know what we call that in marriage? A marriage. I mean, in America, we call that a marriage. That's really it. It's two people blaming each other for why they're not fulfilled in their lives, unfortunately. In America, we're constantly, I don't know, uh, rewriting history or changing rules or whatever. We're trying to find who to blame now. Why am I unhappy? Well, it's, I mean, really, we we have this group mentality that's absolutely uh, so weird and so wrong that we're going to try to find somebody that made me feel insufficient as a human being. And it's like, well, listen, you can villainize whoever you want. Bottom line is, is, are you ashamed of being who you are? I mean, are you, you're going to have to come to terms with who you are as a person in Christ, in God, created in his image. But it's what we all do. We, blame all, we all blame the 1%. This world would be so much better if the 1%'s wealth was distributed to everybody else. Then we'd be all okay. Really? Until you find out that all Americans are in the 1% of world economy. Don't be messing with my head. Don't be taking my stuff now. I'm sorry, I don't mean to get off, but I just wanted to let you know that this little thing in the garden just kind of went bam. And it doesn't work. The fix doesn't work. I mean, it really doesn't. It doesn't work in a marriage and it doesn't work in a culture the way that we do it. Three, my fear of being blamed makes me lose control. Adam and Eve lost control of everything. They lost control of their garden, their relationship, and the environment they were in. And sometimes the more out of control you feel, the more controlling you become. Um, I find that that's pretty much how I respond. I become defending, demanding, demeaning, and dominating. And these are all indications that I'm afraid of losing control. Isn't that crazy? I would get these dominant type of responses And it's not because I'm like an A-type personality who wants to rule the world. It's like, no, I will become defending, demanding, demeaning, and dominating because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what you could do to me. It's not because I want to rule the world. I'm just afraid that you'll step into mine and take control of mine. You could lay this over every relationship. So what's the cure? Well, let me say real quickly this. It starts to learn in the love, live in the love of God. John 1, 4, 18 says this in the first part of the verse. It says, wherever God's love is, there is no fear. You can kick fear out of relationships by bringing God's love in. That's, so wherever God's love is, wherever it's working, it's operating, it's being brought in, it will begin to push this fear that we all suffer from away. You can kick it out of the relationship. The second part of the verse is very important too. It says, it is the thought of punishment that makes a person fearful. Is that 
when you find out what I did or what's wrong with me, we all become fearful of, as a result of that punishment. People are afraid to be themselves. We're afraid of what you'll say to us or what you'll think about us. People are afraid to be truthful. Here's, here's going to be one. I know it's going to nail a lot of you. I mean, and, and you won't feel guilty about it, but it's, it really will. There are a lot of people who are afraid of being silly. Being silly. Have you ever, parents, have you ever looked at your teenage kid and said, knock it off? Don't dress like that. Don't look like that. And it's like, why? They're a teenager. Why would you fuss at a teenager for acting like a teenager? Because it makes you, something inside of you, you're afraid of them thinking something about you. And I'll give you a personal example of this. Deanna, who's part of the worship team, is up here. She's the redhead that stands here. And now when she was part of the worship team years ago, about five years ago, she'd do a lot of this during worship. You know, she'd do worship, and she'd be like, like this. And she'd worship in, and and, and she'll just worship in, or then she'll do, am I doing it right? Am I, yeah, she'll do this, you know. And, and then one time she actually kneeled in the middle of worship. And, and I, you know what I'm doing in the back? I'm like, she's got to friggin' knock that off. <laughs> and it's like, and, it's like and, and all of you are like, oh, you're so blessed to have a daughter that twirls, you know. And, it's, <laughs> and I'm like, no. I am mortified to have a daughter that twirls. And it's like, why? Because I'm too afraid to twirl. I mean, just visualize that for a second, me twirling. It's not a good, it's not a good image. But, it, but, it's, but, but I've shown you enough of me, okay? <laughs> People are afraid to be silly. And maybe, and I'm just gonna put this in the dad category because that's where I live. Dads are notorious for don't act stupid, don't embarrass me, don't look ridiculous, be stoic, be controlled, be quiet, be blah, don't make, you know, and it's like, and you're a little teenager or you're a little five-year-old, you're a little, your wife wants to be silly and, and, uh, and we're petrified. Why? Because there is torment in fear. We're afraid. Why? Because there's something inside of us that's ashamed. We don't want to be embarrassed. So how do we live in God's love? Well, there's three things, real, and I'll go real quick on them. Every day I surrender to his love. Every day I remember his love. And every day I render to his love. Every day I surrender. It's like I ask God every single day of my life, and this is the truth. God, I need you to move into my emotions, into my mind, into my responses. I need you to fill me with your love. I ask God that he will just move into my life. Every morning, surrender your heart to God. Just ask God to fill your life. Get closer to God. And the more his love will move into your life, the more fear will be extricated from your life. Job eleven thirteen says this, if only you would prepare your heart and lift up your hands to him in prayer. Get rid of your sins and leave all your iniquity behind. Then your face will brighten with innocence. You will be strong and free of fear. You will forget your misery and it will be like water flowing away. There's something freeing about the love of God. 
then every day I need to remember. Like Katie reminded us, I need to remember this love of God. I am completely loved. I'm completely accepted. I am unconditionally loved. I'm totally forgiven. And I am considered valuable. See, that's why I'm not afraid of you much. I'm not invincible, believe me, in any But the reason why I can share who I am with you is because of that cross right there. If God be for me, who could really be against me? And I know you're all broken, just like I'm broken. So that's why I'm not, you know, it's kind of like he without sin let him cast the first stone. I know if we're really honest about ourselves, nobody could throw a stone at another person in the room. But I know how much I am loved, how valuable I am. That casts out fear. And the third one is this, every day I render. I try to give others the same kind of love. Not my love, not what I think you deserve, not a piece of my mind, but I try to give people the love that I have been given. Jesus said it this way in John 13, 34, I'm giving you a new commandment to love each other. And he, doesn't, and he says like, oh, hold on, American, hold on. Because I know you, when I said love, you got something in your mind. He says this, love each other in the same way that I have loved you. Oh, that, that changes it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love never stops being patient. Lover, love never stops believing. Love never stops hoping. Love never gives up. See, when this is in your life, when you, when you surrender to his love, when you remember his love, when you render his love, the amazing thing is that fear begins to disappear. You become powerful. You become an unstoppable force when this happens in your life. So as we move into this moment of expressions, and that's why we serve communion. That if you believe that Jesus Christ died and on the third day he rose again, we invite you to celebrate this love of God. You need to remember with what kind of love you were given. You need to surrender to it. Because it's what took place on that cross that gives us the power to move forward. So this will be a good time for you to ask yourself, what is it that I'm ashamed of? What is it that I am so afraid that other people will say to me or, you know, I, I, isn't it funny? Like, I, I, this is probably a terrible example, but I'm going to say it because we do it. It's like people will say to me, well, you know, Johnny, you know, um, he's gay. You know, or, or they'll say, or Billy, you know, you know he's black, right? It's like, these people don't know they're different. Or, you know, Susan, she's, you know, white or whatever, you know. We kind of whisper about what we think is not up to par. Isn't that crazy? We do that. What are we doing? We're telling on ourselves when we whisper. We're telling on ourselves. See, supremacy is not a white problem. Supremacy is the response of all humans who are afraid and need to dominate. Supremacy doesn't come from I'm better than you. 
Supremacy comes from hiding because I'm afraid you'll take something from me. And it's not just a white problem. It's an everybody problem. Yes, some groups have perfected it. But it's an everybody problem. And it will go on in your marriage. God told Eve, oh yeah, you're going to long for him, but he's going to dominate you. And then Adam, oh, by the way, yeah, you're going to try to dominate the land and the land is going to produce weeds. It's going to fight back. We live in that environment where we'll try to dominate one another. But not because we're like intrinsically wicked or not because we really want to just hurt people, but because we're afraid. We're afraid of losing control. We're being exposed. So let me welcome you to the table of Christ because this is our hope. This is our hope. It's the love of God in us. Father, we thank you so much for your love. I thank you so much that you were willing to be exposed on a cross, hung naked in front of the world. Nobody gave you a fig leaf that day. You were stripped and beaten and hung because you knew our greatest fear was exactly what you were experiencing. So Father God, we ask today that the same love that rose Christ from the dead would dwell in, in us. Fill us with your love. We want to love like you, Lord. We don't want to be afraid of being silly. We don't want to be afraid of being found out. We don't want to be afraid of fully loving another person even though they could hurt us. Lord God, we want to be powerful with love. We don't want to dominate. We want to encourage and strengthen one another and have this mind in us which was in Christ Jesus look not only on his own interest but on the interest of others that's what will fix our marriage our families and our nation no more fig leaves Lord God just the grace of God